National Review's Charles Cook reacts to the big Supreme Court gun ruling and the Senate bipartisan gun deal. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and pick up a membership today if you want to get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you cannot get anywhere else. Uh, you can also subscribe to our free newsletter if you want to see uh, some of the work that we do before you make the dive into full membership. Uh, but but members do get this podcast a day early and they get the opportunity to appear on the podcast. We had a wonderful member last week, Mary Catherine Hamm, um, on. And so you guys should check out that episode too. But this week, um, we got a lot of news. We got a lot of news to cover. And uh, that includes the Supreme Court's decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, which is the first major gun decision in over a decade from the court. Uh, and so joining me today is Charles Cook from National Review, who has written extensively uh, on the court and on this issue in particular. Thanks for being with us, Charles. Thanks for having me. We actually set this up before we knew Bruin was coming down. So this is serendipitous. <laughs> yes, it worked out well. We're also going to talk a little bit about the Senate uh, gun deal, because uh, that's the other big piece of news that's that's going on this week. Um, we got a, a lot just dumped on us all at once here. But the Supreme Court case, I, I think you'd agree, is the bigger story at this point. What is your main takeaway? Well, I think it does two things. Uh, the first thing it does is address what was a fairly narrow question, that being, can a state introduce into its uh, application criteria for gun carry permits anything other uh, than general objective rules? In other words, can a state say that an applicant needs to determine need as determined by a, a police officer uh, or a uh, judge officer of the state yeah. or a judge um, or can uh, a state only impose uh, regulations that affect everyone equally you know for example are you a felon uh, have you been convicted of domestic violence? Are you uh, subject to a mental health um, order? Uh, and the court came down and said, "You have, if you're going to um, uh, have a permitting system, you know, many states don't. I think 25 states don't. But if you're going to have a permitting system, then you have to apply uh, those permits uh, evenly." Uh, but the second thing it did, which got, I, I think, slightly less attention, but in the long run is really going to matter, is it cleared up a lot of the loose ends from Heller. Uh, and it did so responsively because a lot of the lower courts have proceeded since 2008 and 2010 with McDonald as if Heller never happened. Uh, they found ways to get around it. Uh, Heller didn't, for example, uh, put a uh, level of scrutiny uh, in its ruling. Um, so courts have made up their own. Um, and what Thomas says in his majority opinion is, this is not an intermediate scrutiny right. This can't be treated differently than any other right. And the only thing you're allowed to look at is the text and the history. Yeah, which I agree with you is, is going to be the much bigger impact here out of this ruling. Certainly, uh, simply striking down New York's May issue uh, as it's called, uh, gun permitting law for concealed carry is significant because it impacts the remaining uh, seven or eight. Uh, you know, my count was eight. The court's count is seven for some reason. I'd have to look into which state they're not including. But uh, those states are actually fairly large states, though. New York, California, uh, Massachusetts, uh, New Jersey. So that covers about 25 percent of the, the country's population. So it's it, even just that part is significant. But the new standard, or, or I guess clarifying the standard for how to decide Second Amendment cases moving forward, is obviously going to impact a lot more because it'll it'll be relevant in basically every gun case uh, from here on out at the federal level, right? Yeah, uh, and and also uh, long before those cases get to the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. uh, which is the key because you know Supreme Court cases are rare. Most of these issues will be litigated in the lower courts. And what Thomas did with the uh, five other justices in the majority opinion 
is give pretty clear instructions as to how those lower courts have to proceed going forward. Now, he greatly irritated Justice Breyer in the process, but he, he did so on the back of a phrase we've heard a great deal from Clarence Thomas. That is that the Second Amendment is not a second-class right. He's been saying this uh, for years when dissenting uh, in the court's decisions not to take big gun cases. Uh, he thinks that its inability or unwillingness to take gun cases has relegated the Second Amendment to a second-class right. Now here what he's saying is, well, now we've taken this case, we're not going to allow it to be treated as a second-class right either in this court or anywhere else. And he says in the opinion, look, we don't have a system where only some people get to take advantage of the First Amendment. We don't have a system where only some people um, have their privacy rights upheld. We don't have a system in which only some people get a trial by jury. And we can't have that uh, in the Second Amendment either. Uh, and and he, he's he's not inventing anything new there. What, what he's doing is complaining that the Heller decision did not put enough meat on the bone to preempt the lower courts into treating the Second Amendment as the right that the Heller decision correctly confirmed it to be. Right. Yeah. And here, here's a quote directly from the majority opinion from, from Justice Thomas. He says, the constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than other Bill of Rights guarantees. We know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to the government officials some special need. And so, you know, that, that I think that sums up the New York case uh, pretty well, because the whole idea of may issue laws is that not only do you have to pass the background check and the training requirements, but you also have to show that you have some sort of specialized uh, good reason to need to carry a gun. Uh, and usually in most states with that rule, uh, that means you have to have some sort of very specific threat against your life. You have to right. have a stalker or some sort of restraining. But it, it, it's and in also, some places, it, it's just a, a total fig leaf, like Hawaii, where they don't issue any gun carry permits. Not a single person in the state, I guess, apparently has a special need to carry. Right. And, and there's actually a footnote in the decision that is interesting that says that the court is not in any way questioning the capacity of a state, uh, and it points to the, it says 43 states that have shall issue systems, that it's not questioning the ability of a state to, for example, have a permitting process, put a training requirement in or what you will. But it does say that if the permitting system is used cynically, if it's used to delay concealed carry or open carry, if it's used as a prohibition mechanism, if it's used to treat people differently, then there can be a constitutional challenge on those grounds. Um, and I think it's worth our saying here that, in a sense, this isn't just a, a Second Amendment question. I mean, the specific issue here is the Second Amendment as incorporated um, via the 14th Amendment. But this is also an equal protection question. You know, we don't have a system in the United States where people can be treated subjectively differently under the law. That has been illegal, thankfully, for a very long time. And that's what New York's doing here. Anything objective is presumptively constitutional under this decision. If they say you have to fire 50 rounds before we'll give you a permit, if you have to take an NRA training course, um, you can't have a felony conviction, you have to be over 21, you have to have a permanent address, you know, objective criteria, those are fine. And you probably will see some states now that will implement, you know, pretty tough training requirements, say 16 hour classes and that yeah. sort of thing. What they can't do is create any system in which there is a subjective determination made by an officer of the government that could be made differently by another one, where Officer A says, I don't think you need it, but Officer B might say, well, I think you might need it. You know, that is obviously not the case with felony convictions or certificates or that sort of thing. Um, and I think that's a really good step for American law under equal protection grounds, leaving aside the question of the Second Amendment. Hmm. Yeah, good point. Um, <clears throat> and just to reiterate on what you were saying earlier, uh, Justices Barrett, or sorry, Justices uh, Brett Kavanaugh and, and John Roberts had a concurrence that sort of emphasized the fact that this doesn't strike down uh, what what are commonly called shall issue laws. And here, here's a quick quote from them. The court's decision does not prohibit states from imposing licensing requirements for carrying a handgun for self-defense. In particular, the court's decision does not affect 
the existing less existing licensing regimes known as shall issue regimes that are employed in 43 states. The court's decision addresses only the unusual discretionary licensing regimes known as may issue regimes that are employed by six states, including New York. So that counts a little weird. But anyway, uh, you know, and then they also represent reemphasize in both the majority opinion and this uh, Kavanaugh concurrence that uh, you know, the, we, the, the second amendment is not unlimited and that there are, uh, restrictions that are presumptively constitutional so long as they are longstanding and in, uh, accordance with the text of the second amendment. Um, and, and that's important, but I, but I want to talk real briefly here because you kind of got into it a little bit on the practical I- impacts of this ruling immediately. Uh, and so on gun carry in the United States, right? Most states, are probably, are, you're not going to see any difference, right? Because most states don't have these laws. But in places like New York or California or Massachusetts, uh, you're going to see a new set of rules for uh, gun carry permits, right? And uh, to me, it'll probably end up, as you alluded to there, a lot like what they have in Washington, D.C., where they just went through this process a couple of years before, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years back, and now they have a shall issue law, but it's one that has much higher training requirements than most other states or jurisdictions, and one that has a lot more uh, restrictions on where you can carry a firearm. Uh, so is that how you think this will play out? Well, I think that the where you can carry a firearm question is going to be probably the next big issue. Um, you know, Thomas notes in his opinion correctly that at the time of the founding, there were time and place restrictions on the Second Amendment. And he says there's no reason to uh, suggest there can't be time and place restrictions on the Second Amendment now. And he says, but at the time of the founding, if, for example, polling places uh, were off limits for carry because they wanted to avoid the uh, semblance of intimidation, whereas now we put schools off limit. And he says this is analogous. Um, this is fine. What he objected to was the uh, uh, state of New York uh, analogizing between, say, a polling place and all of Manhattan. You know, right. he says that that is not a time and place restriction. That that is a prohibition. Right. Um, so that part, I think, will be will be slowly worked out. Um, and obviously, the first thing that's going to happen is nothing because it, this is not as if the court had, had come out and said, you know, constitutional carry is mandatory. And uh, so suddenly someone in California says, well, great, I can take a gun out with me right. or I wasn't able to before. People are still going to have to apply for permits. And until they have a permit, they won't have a permit. And if they don't have a permit, they can't carry a gun. So I mean, as of today, nothing's changed. It's not like that brief, was it one day, two days where yes, Washington days. DC, yes. three days was constitutional carry. Because yeah, um, I did it. I was I carried on the mall for that yeah. very brief and then period of time I, with, the, with the ruling in my pocket. <laughs> I don't think that um, we're going to see much litigation in New York or New Jersey or California over what they choose to do. Uh, there will be a threshold somewhere. I mean, they can't charge $5,000 for a carry permit, or so you have to go through two years of training, probably. Um, but if they do what's happened in Washington, D.C., and they make it difficult, I think that will probably stand up um, mm-hmm. under this decision and, and under this court's uh, watchful eye. So, you know, what will change? Um yeah, New York, New Jersey, California are gonna are gonna be more like Washington DC. There just won't be a component there uh, that that requires permission from uh, a subjective actor. And then I would imagine a whole host of uh, venues um, and jurisdictions are going to say you can't carry a gun here, and eventually that's going to lead to some litigation because they'll push it too far. Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably what'll happen. I mean, DC has, uh, I mean, DC's probably the strictest of the shall issue laws out there because it requires 16 hours of training, including uh, range time w- with that training, which you can't do in the city because there are no public shooting ranges there. So you have to travel outside. It's a similar thing to what they do in with Chicago uh, in Illinois, but, but um, it also has these, uh, it has a lot of gun free zones. Of course they they make, you can't carry on public transportation which uh, which obviously presents a lot of problems if you don't own a car. 
Um, and then you also, they've created uh, special gun-free zones. This has actually happened in uh, Virginia recently as well, and a couple other states are doing this now with uh, permitted events or events that ought to have been permitted, uh, you know, protests, large gatherings of that nature. Uh, you can't carry there, and so you kind of have to, uh, if you see too many people gathering in one place, you have to run away from them, I guess, um, is the idea. But uh, And then also D.C. has a special gun-free zone that travels. Uh, it follows diplomatic uh, cars around. So if you see a diplomat coming towards you, you know, run away, I guess. Uh, now, I believe they have to give you some sort of warning before they could, you could be char arrested over this, but... Right. But you get the idea. There will be things like that, which will probably be contentious, that will come up uh, in these new laws. But that's what I'd expect the direction of things to, to head. Um, and, and you know, so... Uh, you know, the, the last thing to say here is that, you know, despite the freakout that followed the announcement of this decision and a statement from the president saying how disappointed he was and the statement from the governor of New York... <laughs> Concealed carry really has very little to do with either mass shootings or daily crime. Right. You know, it's 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 just not. I mean, really, the only thing that concealed carry has to do with mass shootings is that very occasionally, and it is very occasionally, a concealed carrier stops one, as we saw in West Virginia mm -hmm. a month ago. That's it. Yes. And and with day to day crime, you know, the the idea that the problem we have in America w with crime committed with firearms is concealed carry. It's just ridiculous. It, it, the two really don't intersect. And what data we have out of Florida and Texas, it's less reliable from Texas now because they have constitutional carry, but is that uh, concealed carriers are about six or seven times more law-abiding than the police. So, you know, this this decision is, is it's big, but it, it's not really even likely to intersect with our gun control debate. It's never been the problem. And that's why we've gone from May issue to Charlotte issue to constitutional carry in a whole bunch of jurisdictions, and nothing has happened in either direction. Crime hasn't gone up or down as a result. It's just not really related. And you know, I think that's something that's worth remembering. It certainly comes up in the decision because in the dissent, Justice Breyer lists this parade of horribles. He talks about shootings and suicides and crime all of which are really important things we should talk about. And Justice Alito responds and sort of says, well, I don't really know what that's got to do with this. It's, you know, n no one who's committing a crime like that is worried that they can or can't take their gun outside. No one who's committing domestic violence is going to be dissuaded because the rules for carry have changed. No, you know, no criminal. Um, it just doesn't really intersect. And I suppose what we'll see is an attempt to link it to other events. But this is something that, really stands alone when thinking about people abusing guns. Yeah, uh, and we've, we've actually written about both of those uh, things, the concealed carry crime rate, uh, you know, crime rate for people who have concealed carry licenses is, is infinitesimally small, uh, even compared to police officers. Uh, and we had a piece on, an analysis piece on that just, uh, just recently at the Reload. And we also uh, wrote up uh, the FBI's active shooter uh, report, which indicated that I believe there are 22 incidents where an armed civilian had had shot the uh, the, right. the attacker. Now, active shooter is a little different than mass shooting because uh, an active shooting doesn't always turn into a mass shooting, obviously. Uh, but somebody with that sort of intention of shooting up uh, a public area, that would be an active shooter in the FBI's uh, estimation, and that's where you've seen at least some of them. It's not it's not a huge percentage overall, but uh, I think there were something like seven hundred. Uh, in the the report and time period they looked at, but certainly it does happen sometimes. Um, but yeah, any, anyway, um, I want to transition a little bit into the uh, uh, the what exactly you think this new standard of review or sort of clarified standard of review that the majority has put into this p this opinion is going to result in like where what are the laws that you feel uh, won't stand up to scrutiny under this standard well the first thing to say is that while the approach that the majority lays out makes it much more difficult for judges to put their thumb on the scale 
you cannot stop courts from doing that if they really want to. And we saw this uh, famously with the Fourth Circuit's decision uh, on the uh, so-called assault weapons ban in Maryland, where the court sort of said, well, this is a, a weapon that is unusual in nature, and therefore it doesn't um, qualify for Heller's in common use protection. And to sustain this, they said all sorts of things about the AR-15 platform that aren't true. And really, they were talking about, you know, an M4 or some sort of select fire or, you know, fully automatic weapon. Um, and that hasn't been reviewed by the court. Uh, so, you know, if, if a lower court really wants to play games with this, um, of course, what the majority opinion does is make it far easier for the court now to dismiss those arguments. Um, it makes it more difficult for the, the lower court to ignore Heller because Heller is fleshed out. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's worth saying that this is not some magic fix, uh, but it does, it does make a difference. Um, I mean, what, what do I think is going to happen? I think what Thomas has tried to do here uh, is what Thomas should have done here, which is treat the Second Amendment as if it's actually a constitutional right. And, you know, I've had this conversation with a lot of people who disagree with me on gun control, forget the law, just on gun control as a, as a political matter or a legal matter. And, you know, they will say, well, yes, but, you know, it's just different, isn't it? And, um, you know, okay, uh, yes, in, and certainly where I'm from it is, but if it's a constitutional right <laughs> and we treat constitutional rights seriously, then no, it's not different. Um, and I think what what Thomas has tried to do is is remove some of the avenues whereby judges are able to say, yeah, the Second Amendment, but this is just too important. And I mean, the, you know, the most obvious effect that that might have is, is if there is a, a case on, say, you know, assault weapons, so-called, or or high capacity magazines, Can, and uh, providing that there is some analogy between those weapons and weapons of the founding, or the original definition of arms covers them, which I, I think it does. I mean, contemporary definitions of arms in the 18th century explicitly mentioned carbines, for example, and the AR-15 is one. I think this makes it more difficult to, to ban those weapons outright. Um, I, I don't suspect we're going to see a much stricter approach toward carry for the reasons I've already outlined. I, I, I think this is about as far as the court is going to go or should go. We already have the decision in Heller that, that lays out that the Second Amendment protects an individual right and that, you know, the ban on handguns is unconstitutional and so on. You know, the next frontier is obviously, well, what's allowed uh, and what's not. And, yeah. um, you know, this this probably does make it more difficult for jurisdictions to ban those those weapons. But you know, the the only caveat there is the Supreme Court seems to take one of these cases every fifteen years. So right. I, mean, I might be right. fifty by the time it happens. That's exactly what I, I say. I think that's a very important point to make here. It does seem like under this new uh this new clarified standard, uh, which really the the court is just saying is the same standard they used in Heller, but they're kind of spelling it out now uh, more explicitly um, that a lot of laws that just are not longstanding, basically, if, if they were if they came about starting in the 20th century, they might have a significant problem passing this new test. So, yeah, assault weapons, bans, magazine limits, uh, gun sales, permitting, uh, perhaps, you know, gun licensing, uh, those sorts of things. You could see a lot of those uh, face new scrutiny. But I think ultimately it does really boil down to like, is the court going to actually take cases to enforce this new standard? Because that's been the problem up until right now, is that they, this is what everybody argued was the standard. Kavanaugh put it, uh, sort of articulated it, I guess, in, in the most uh, uh, influential way. But 
But, you know, the Heller standard for on the gun rights side, this has been what people thought the court was saying the whole time. And it didn't really matter because the court wouldn't take any of these cases where lower courts upheld uh, gun gun restrictions based on this two step uh, standard that that right. it has now trashed. So I think it will it will come down a lot to whether they actually take more cases. Right. Right. I think that's right. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons that they haven't taken more cases. One has changed, the other hasn't. The first is obviously the makeup of the court. Um, this is a different court than the one that decided uh, Heller and that decided McDonald. So there's probably more votes now to take these cases, and there's right. probably more confidence that if they take them, uh, they will come out in a, in a clear fashion. Right. Um, the thing that hasn't changed is that some of these questions are actually really difficult. So I don't think that the uh, the case that the court looked at today was particularly difficult. I don't think Heller was particularly difficult. I do think it would be difficult for the court to start micromanaging this. Mm. You know, for example, is 12 hours of training fine? Is 18 hours of training fine? Now, a year of training is too much. But, you, you, you know, other than outlining broad strokes... It, you don't want to have every gun question being decided by judges. Yeah. And uh, as such, I think some of the cases that people want them to take, including which weapons are allowed, are actually quite hard um, to, to deal with. You know, Heller has an in-common use standard. I think the AR-15 is very clearly protected. So mm. this, this, this is in no way to, to undermine that uh, idea. Um, but... There's also a provision in Heller that talks about unusual weapons. What is that? Yeah, yeah that's tough. And, and Heller, I don't think they want to get too much into that in the same way that in the, you know, in the 60s, they, they got tired of having to decide what pornography was and wasn't and eventually said, we're not doing it anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, in Heller, to me, uh, it's still very much a compromise ruling. I mean, you've got... Uh, you know, I just said that a lot of laws that didn't exist until the 20th century are going to come under new scrutiny because of the standard. But the court has already said something like the National Firearms Act or, or alluded to the National Firearms Act in Heller and said it was presumptively constitutional because it's, uh, I guess, uh, automatic weapons are are unusual and dangerous, uh, at least in the that it's it's not you know uh, it wasn't a major part of the ruling but it was something that was mentioned as like here are some laws that we don't think would be struck down by the second amendment and well, the national and firearms act which didn't happen until 1934 is was among them so yeah i mean the, the problem with the in common use standard is although i understand the logic for it it, it can ultimately become circular right in the sense that mm -hmm. so tomorrow let's say that somebody invents a smart gun now we, we associate smart guns either with, with the sort of james bond movies because they don't really exist or with democratic politicians who are obsessed with them and, and they really want uh this to be the future and they always talk about getting rid of all the guns that aren't smart guns and so on um uh, but but you could theoretically have a, a state that says, okay, well, uh, uh, the smart gun has just been invented that actually works. We're banning it. And under Heller's in common use standard, that might be all right. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, which, you know, is that really what the Second Amendment is supposed to do? I don't know. That That's a that's a tricky one. Um, uh, you know, so, so yeah, I, I, I take your point, but I, I, I think that really underscores the the problem which is that the court i think wants to get involved in broad brush um decisions that make it clear what the second amendment means and what can on a on a macro basis be prohibited and what can't and beyond that i think it wants to leave the question to state and federal legislatures and i and i think it's right to do so within bounds yeah, no, I mean the the court shouldn't become its own legislature, right? That's that's uh, goes very much against what what a lot of uh, pro gun or, or conservative uh, um, you know activists want. So uh, I, I think you're you're absolutely right, and it, it will be interesting. I mean, look, Heller to me, when I read through Heller, uh, and, and when you read through this case, uh, this this opinion. Like, you know, Heller's trying to just get at one small thing, which is to establish right. that the Second Amendment applies to individuals and that um, 
the handgun, which is the most popular gun for self-defense in the country, is something that is protected. That, that if the Second Amendment means anything, it must mean this thing. And so it's building from there. And, you know, it's not going to be completely clean all the time with these sort of uh, uh, outcomes because, you know, life is complicated. The law is complicated. There's a lot of balancing uh, acts to do here. But but um, yeah, so I mean, uh, still, this this ruling does represent what everybody in the gun rights community wanted, I think, uh, out of this case. Um, The only thing I think that's missing, perhaps, on the gun carry aspect is, uh, you know, in D.C., when they struck down D.C.'s law, they there was a sp- specific provision that said that had to be uh, D.C. had to accept non-resident applications for permits. And I don't believe that there's anything like that in this ruling, is there? No, there's nothing yeah. like that at all. I didn't see it. All this says, it, I mean, and it's funny because the concurrences from Kavanaugh and, and Alito are very keen to put this in its correct context. And uh, mm-hmm. Alito begins his concurrence by saying that so much of the effort undertaken in the dissent is to obfuscate the fact that this ruling is actually somewhat simple. And all of all it says is, if you uh, have a permitting system, as opposed to, say, a state such as Texas, that just allows anyone to, to carry a firearm, providing they're eligible right. without a permit, then you, you can't hand them out. Uh, on an unequal basis. That's it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the state of Virginia can say we don't accept a permit from the state of Florida. Um, right. Uh, quite easily, the state of Virginia can say you have to have a 20 hour course uh, before you can have a permit. What it can't do is say you have to demonstrate to us that you need this uh, more than anyone else. Uh, the, the presumption is uh, that you have access to that right. And um, again, you know, (laughs) that's because it's a right. I mean, this is this is ultimately our our argument. And I was reading the dissents and I'm thinking, okay, I wish that Breyer and the others joined it. They didn't write, but I I wish Breyer would just say that he doesn't think it's a right. Just openly say that Um, because everything that flows from that position um, is consistent with his dissent. It's 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 just you know if you believe it's a right and I, that's how I would characterize it that Heller announced to the world once and for all that the Second Amendment protects an individual right and Bruin has announced to the world once and for all that that right is to be treated like any other right in the Bill of Rights that that's what just happened. Um, yeah, I think that's a pretty good summation uh, at the bottom bottom line of, of what exactly uh, this ruling does, but. Um, I think we should probably move on real quick, just in the little sure. time we have left here, to talk about uh, the, sec- the the Senate, because uh, as as this is happening, as the Supreme Court is is releasing the, the major ruling on the Second Amendment, you also have a major development in federal gun legislation. Uh, for the first time in in uh, you know decades, you're getting new gun restrictions. It's not the first federal gun law, right? And you've, I know you've written about this, so the way media has covered this, but. Uh, it's the first time we have new restrictions. And and frankly, uh, the bill hasn't technically passed yet, but it's extremely likely to happen before uh, the July 4th recess here uh, that's coming up. And, um, it, you know, it's the first one that has new restrictions and that could apply to a lot of people, honestly, uh, given the way the bill is written um, and uh, the fact that it extends the current prohibitions on selling guns to somebody who has a felony conviction, a domestic violence misdemeanor, or uh, has been involuntarily committed, it extends all those things to that person, to anyone's juvenile records in, in, in uh, as well as their uh, adult records. So that, I don't know how many people, I'm sure there's no way to really uh, know for sure how many people that's going to make newly prohibited, uh, but it's probably a lot, right? Yeah, so I, 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 backing up a bit, I don't think this law is very good. Yes, you, and, you've been critical. You've written a number of pieces at National Review on this. Um, so, yeah, can you just give us your over, overarching view of why you don't think this deal is a good idea? Well, I, I first off, don't think it's a deal. I think it's a series of concessions. And I wish Republicans would stop calling it a deal. A deal would be where both sides have got something they wanted rather than 
you know, one side getting some of, of what it wanted. There, there are changes to the law that Republicans want. For example, yeah. they'd like to fix the Firearms Owners Protection Act. They'd like to take suppressors out of the NFA. You know, they're never going to get something massive like concealed carry reciprocity, um, which I should say I have a constitutional issue with, which we won't go into now. But they, they could have got something around the edges um, that, that really would not have undermined what the, the Democrats are trying to do. They didn't. This isn't a deal. It's a concession. Well, so, um, well, one, I guess, just to challenge you real quick on that point. They did get, um, you know, funding for school safety programs and funding for mental health crisis interventions, which has been priorities for Republicans and even you know groups like the NRA as you know solutions to mass shootings. But you don't view that as uh, there isn't any well, program. I, I don't. Right, in, I don't because I think that um, while the Republicans are the the people who have said we need to make schools safer, I, I don't think it was ever necessarily. Uh, the product of federal funding, um, you know, that that was their idea as to how they could do it. But schools are a state concern. I, I've never heard a Republican say, you know, the way that we should fix this is to harden our schools. And it has to be with federal money. Uh, you know, this is, um, th this is really a state question. So th the way I see this bill, um, I think there's sort of three categories. One uh, are ideas that really do belong to the states. Um, two uh, is ideas that are actually already in federal law and are weirdly reiterated. Uh, and three is good federal ideas that are the federal government's job, but just don't seem to have been particularly well thought through. So in the first category, you have all sorts of money for what are really state concerns. You have money for red flag laws, money for mental health, money for hardening schools. I don't think that's the role of the federal government. I don't like the federal government spending money when it doesn't have any left. I don't like the federal government sending money to the states on average because it adds all sorts of uh, riders to, to the money that interferes with state prerogative. So I, I don't think there was a need for federal money here. I, I don't think any state in the union has declined to implement a red flag system because they thought it would cost too much. You know, to me, this is federal intrusion. Um, then there's the second part, which baffles me, the redefinition of um, an FFL yeah. in ways that aren't uh, particularly transparent, uh, and the reiteration that straw purchasing is illegal, which we already knew is already federal law. The problem there is that we just don't enforce it, either at the state or federal level. Right. Um, and then there's the federal bits. Now, the federal bits, um, I actually have some time for in theory. I don't have a problem with the federal government trying to work out how to improve the background check system in, in the way it currently exists. Um, and I don't have a problem with expanding definitions um, uh, of domestic violence uh, to try and prevent people from uh, getting hold of guns and then and then shooting their spouse or, or girlfriend or what you will. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that I don't think these provisions have been really thought through. Um, yeah. you know, first... There is a weird provision in that which expands the definition of, of um, domestic violence convict of a misdemeanor, of course, because felons are already uh, prohibited, um, to those with, with girlfriends, essentially, who are in a, a long-term or serious relationship. Dating partners, yes. But then expires it after five years. Now, firstly, I'm not clear why uh, we would do that. Uh, you know, But if we believe that after, say, five years, people who've committed violent crimes are uh, or should be eligible to buy guns again. I mean, maybe we should have a conversation much more broadly about that, because that's not the way we treat anyone else. If you rob a bank, we don't give you five years and then give you a comeback. It's weird. It's an odd provision because it's, it's so it expunges the record after five years only for domestic violence misdemeanors committed by people who against their dating partners, which... Right. One, also, they don't really define what a dating partner is. They have some vague guidelines about it, dealing with the length of the relationship and the nature of the re They don't really specifically say any of like how long the relationship has to be or uh, it, it's real. A lot is left up to, I guess, the courts to figure out. But but, yeah, anyone who is found to be in this category of somebody who's who's committed domestic violence misdemeanor against a dating partner. Their record is automatically expunged from NICS, uh, the National Institute of Criminal Background Check System. I mean, after five years, if they have, if they don't recommit a crime or, or you know, break probation or anything like that, and it is odd because it does not apply to any of the other domestic violence misdemeanor convictions or any of the other uh, prohibiting records for some reason. Um, even the juvenile records don't 
there's no, there's a, so they have sort of uh, two things that are separate that are smushed together uh, when it comes to juveniles. There's, or young, uh, you know, adults under 21. There's a juvenile records thing, which adds all felony and domestic violence, misdemeanor and involuntary commitment records, juvenile records to the NICS system. Um, and then there's a special background check process just for 18 to 20 year olds, which uh, really kind of, uh, it, it seems like in practice, it would automatically, or in most, the vast majority of cases, put somebody uh, into a delay process where the FBI gets three days to investigate whether there are red flag, whether there's some reason to think you might have a disqualifying record and then gets 10 days total to look for that record before the sale can, can process without a decision. But, um, but that the background check process goes away after 10 years. Uh, but the records don't, they all stay in the system. Well, this is another part that I'm confused by. And, and I think as with the, the so-called boyfriend loophole, which we just discussed, it, it's the product of a total lack of debate. Um, this has been written in private, it's being rushed through. Uh, so if it is a good idea to include juvenile records, for example, and I'm open to the idea that it is, we, we should have had a much longer conversation about this because the way that states treat juvenile records really varies dramatically. Some yeah. of them automatically expunge those records, some of them allow them into court. The federal government is about to preempt 50 states on juvenile records question mm-hmm. and include them in the background check system when Forever. evaluating eligibility for a constitutional right. And it's just going to do it in a week. You yeah. know, I'm no fan of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but she does have a point on this, that this has far reaching consequences and we just haven't talked about it at all. Um, also, the inclusion of juvenile records, which apply to everyone irrespective of their age, so mm-hmm. 18 to, tw- to 20 and also 21 and above, uh, seems to me uh, to be uh, a bit of a, a problem um, because the law only amends purchasing. Yes. It doesn't amend possession. Now, is that a mistake? It could be. This was written really quickly. Um, if it's not, what is it trying to achieve? It's very um, if the idea is to prevent people who have juvenile records because they're presumably dangerous from having guns and hurting people with them, then do you not want to make it illegal for them to possess those guns too? So we're, we're what? We're going to have a lifetime ban on buying a gun if you have a juvenile record no, on selling at any age, but not, uh, sorry, yeah, on buying a gun or, or selling someone, but, but not owning one. Yeah, it's I, not I, even, I, you, you could why? legally... Someone with a prohibiting juvenile record under this bill could legally try to buy one. The the onus isn't True. on the prohibit the person with the record; it's the onus is on the seller. Uh, now right. there's a knowingly standard in there, so you know it's not just you'd have to have some reason to think the person was was prohibited. But but yeah, I mean it's very odd the way it's written. Uh, I imagine that's a mistake because. Like, why would you do it that way? <laughs> like, what? I mean, it's not—it's not a grandfathering, right? It doesn't. No, we don't still do it anywhere not, else either. Yeah, it's just a very odd thing. And then, and then, yeah, the the changing the definition of FFL is or engaged in the business in order to you know require somebody to to obtain a license seems uh, the language is appears to be just as vague as the previous language, except for the requirement that somebody be make, trying to make a livelihood off of the gun sales, uh, that's in the previous definition. Now it's just that they're predominantly trying to profit, which opens up the idea that maybe anyone selling a gun for profit at any point uh, yeah. might and have, I have to, to say, get the reason this bothers me, Stephen, is that um, the interpretation of the previous provision is clear. Uh, whether or not the previous provision is clear to the average person reading it, we now have you know 29 years of case law on what that provision means. I mean, this is obviously the product of the Brady Bill because you have to determine who is a uh, who has to run a background check and, and who doesn't, and the 1968 Gun Control Act. And so those two have intersected for 29 years, and we have a fairly good idea what it means. And the Democrats want to change it. You know, they want to change it with so-called universal background checks. But they also, at various points, have tried to change or clarify or massage what it means to be in the business. Obama tried to do this over and over again. 
And they've run up against a brick wall because that law has been fairly stable. And now in a bill that no one has really read or debated, suddenly it's being changed. I'm not saying there's some grand conspiracy here, but I think that makes it very difficult for people who are trying to comply with the law to feel comfortable selling a gun. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I if I had a bunch of guns that I didn't want anymore, and I thought maybe I'll go down to a gun show and I'll sell one, or maybe I'll sell one on Craigslist, and you know, I would now worry that that some court's going to come along and say, ah, well, this what looks like a semantic change is actually a really important change, and you're going to federal prison. Yeah, um, and no, I don't I think, think we should be changing the law like that. I think that's a, a real risk of this language change. I mean, I, I sold a gun and made a profit off it once. Uh, you know, I'd built an AR and the price, the demand for ARs went very, went way up in 2013, if you recall, uh, because of concern that they were going to become banned. And uh, I made money when I sold that AR. Uh, under this new standard, would I be breaking law? I don't know. Right. <laughs> you know, there was some speculation that they were just, they, they were finally going to put like a number on how many sales you could do before you needed to do, uh, you know, needed to get a license, but it doesn't do that. It's just equally as vague as the other one, except it seems to remove the livelihood requirement. Uh, at least it removes livelihood from the definition of engaged in the business, which sounds like a lower standard to me now. Right. Uh, so yeah, right. I would be pretty worried uh, that the ATF could just, you know, go go after anyone who's who's selling a gun and makes a profit off of it in, in any circumstance. Uh, I don't know. We don't know. <laughs> That's the problem. And uh, and you're right. There hasn't been really any debate. Um, and I should mention that uh, as, as I mentioned last week, Senator Cornyn had uh, John Cornyn from Texas, who's been the leading Republican in, the, in these negotiations, um, had agreed to come on the podcast. Uh, that got pushed back to this week, and then now it's been pushed off again. Uh, his senator says he's too busy, but he will make it up to us at some point. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but this, the bill's going to get passed before he comes on the show at the very least. And that's not a great sign either. No, it's not. <laughs> so I wish there was more, uh, openness to, yeah, obviously he's answered questions from other reporters, but I wish he would come on and do an in-depth interview on, on this proposal. Cause it's, it's important. I mean, this stuff, like I said, at the top of this, uh, this section, I really think it could affect probably millions of people. Just that juvenile mm-hmm. records part alone, um, in the end, has the likelihood to affect quite a lot of people. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see where it ends up. Uh, if maybe, I don't think there's gonna, they're going to even allow any amendments to be considered during uh, the, the next uh, day or two here. So I, don't, I think the text of the bill is what it's going to be. Yeah, although point. it's possible the House will change it, but... Could be, but probably not. They're they're looking probably to not. pass this as fast as they can. They don't yeah. want that coalition to fall apart. Uh, you know, no. Politi- politically, that's understandable, but it's not, perhaps not great for lawmaking, right? Right. But uh, anyway, we really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're super busy because every gun news story uh, just broke all at once here, and uh, you're in high demand. So we really appreciate you coming on the show and and giving us some of your time. Thank you no, so thanks much. Thanks for having Charles. me. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Wonderful. And people can can head over to National Review and, and sign up for a subscription. I'm a subscriber. I read uh, everything Charles writes on guns, and I recommend you do the same. So uh, thank you so much again. We'll, we'll have to have you on uh, down the line here uh, uh, to, to just talk about more of this because there's going to be a lot more. Absolutely. There always is. Okay. I'm joined by contributing writer Jake Fogelman now. Uh, to talk about another story that, uh, Jake, you wrote this week that is is pretty interesting. It dovetails uh, with the Uvalde police response, and it's it's about, I think, a situation that maybe a lot of people hadn't heard of, or maybe they, they heard about this briefly when it happened, but haven't been, uh, you know, up to date on the details of what went down uh, with this particular shooting in Colorado. Uh, so can you give us a little more information about what exactly uh, is, is, is happening now. Yeah, sure. So this, uh, this is a story that hits a little close to home for me. This is about happened about a half hour from where I live. Um, about a year ago, just almost exactly a year ago for background for listeners, um, a deranged guy with a anti-police animus went into a crowded shopping center in Arvada, Colorado, which is just North of Denver. 
um, with a shotgun and an AR-15. Um, and he set out basically to shoot as many cops as he could. And he actually ended up ambushing a police officer um, that was responding when folks saw this guy. Um, so very tragic situation. And he, he waited on scene after he killed that police officer to confront any other responding officers. Well, nearby uh, shopping at the this shopping center was an armed citizen who had a concealed carry permit. He just happened to be there. He heard the shots. He stepped out, uh, confronted this guy, shot him six times um, and ended up killing him. Well, it turns out that the responding police officers that came afterwards uh, mistook this armed citizen as the shooter or something along those lines ended up killing him. Uh, so now fast forward one year and the mother of that armed citizen is now suing that police department because some troubling details have come out about how that all transpired. Uh, that kind of calls into question the officer's actions here. Um, they said that uh, there's a, a link or a a quote here from the, the lawsuit that kind of sums it up says, Mr. Hurley, who's the armed citizen, his death was not the result of a misfortunate split second judgment call gone wrong, but the result of a deliberate and unlawful use of deadly force. Um, so essentially, they're alleging that the responding officers didn't announce that they were police, didn't give this guy a chance to show that, hey, I'm not a threat, put my gun down, I'm not a threat. And they just kind of showed up and shot him. So kind of troubling in the in the wake of the Uvalde shooting, we're seeing a lot of public scrutiny on police officers responding to active shooter situations. Um, obviously, they're very chaotic and troubling situations, but certainly it's another, you know, not a great incident to see. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, and some of the details here are particularly concerning, just like we're learning about the, the police response to Uvalde um, and how horrendous that was, frankly. Uh, you know, waiting an hour to go in, like even to the point where they were disarming another a fellow officer whose wife was bleeding out in the inside of the classroom. They this they they stopped him from going in and took his gun away. Uh, you know, so so that's you know big big part of the news right now is this this absurd, uh, unthinkable response in Uvalde. And now you know here's a reminder that this is not the first time that something like this has gone terribly wrong. I mean, you have a guy who who saved a bunch of officers' lives, frankly, by stopping the, the murderer who was trying to kill them. And right. then in turn, they killed him. And and look, you know, obviously there's a, a, you know, a case of um, mistaken identity going on here, perhaps, uh, or, you know, almost certainly. And, you know, I don't think anyone's alleging that this officer knew that this 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 uh, heroic uh, concealed carrier wasn't uh, you know wasn't the shooter right uh, but but the the allegation is like he, they ought to have figured it out in the time frame that they were there uh, before right. the shots were taken because it was something like he watched him for something like 11 seconds if, if I remember the detail in the story correctly uh, before taking the shot and also I, weren't they hadn't they arrived and they were hiding? I was uh, just going to say what what adds to the kind of the troubling aspect of this is that three officers, there's actually a substation, an Arvada police substation at this shopping center just because it's a high traffic area. And apparently while the shots were the initial shots, when the first officer got ambushed, broke out, three officers spotted the shooter, but took cover because they were concerned that he had a long gun and they only had handguns. And so they just hmm. hid in the substation while the shooting happened. And this armed citizen comes out and takes this guy down. And then they only leave once they see the armed citizen going down to secure the rifle that the bad guy dropped, obviously, once he was no longer a threat. Um, according to the lawsuit, he was allegedly removing the magazine and clearing the chamber when he was shot. Um, so just. Yeah, bad. that's all around bad. That is that is remarkable. You know, the you have a situation where uh, the police are under attack and a armed civilian is the only one who actually does the proper thing, which is to try and neutralize the active shooter as right. quickly as possible with whatever means he has, which in this case was himself a, a pistol. Not, right. He didn't have a rifle. Um, right. And he still went to shoot and successfully subdued this attacker only to be killed by the police he was defending. Right. Uh, I mean, geez. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a rough that's a rough situation. And, you know, also one where frankly, it's unlikely that this lawsuit succeeds. I, you know, in my, just my personal opinion here, I, we don't get into personal opinion a lot, but it's, it, you know, judging by how difficult it is to actually, um, you know, hold police 
accountable for these sorts of shootings uh, or for their own inaction, as we're seeing in Uvalde, where it's unlikely that anything significant is going to happen to any of those officers either. Uh, but, the, you know, it's very unlikely that this lawsuit succeeds, I think. I tend to agree, but I I will just jump in real quick. Colorado actually two years ago repealed qualified immunity in the state. Um, So I think that's one thing that provides maybe a slight nugget that you could get some sort of accountability here. But I agree the law, like the odds of it are still kind of a long shot. But yeah, I just think that the circumstances are too uh, murky in terms of uh, proving that this was not... uh, the, the, you know, this sounds like it was on the outer limits of what's a reasonable shoot would be like, yeah, because, uh, you know, there was an active shooter. Uh, the police officer saw a man with a rifle and just assumed that he was the active shooter. That was obviously the wrong assumption and uh, poor decision making on his part. But I think it's going to be difficult to actually hold him legally responsible for that because it's very difficult, frankly, even without qualified immunity to hold police responsible for these sorts of uh, incidents. It just is. That's just the reality everywhere in the United States, not not just, uh, you know, Colorado or Texas or wherever. But that's how, you know, that's how things work. And, and, you know, I think it's unfortunate, too, because, you know, you got two high profile now incidents where the police were absolutely derelict in their response to a active shooter. Um, and, and it paints a, a very negative light on law enforcement when, you know, there are many, many cases where police do the proper thing Absolutely. Uh, in responding to these sorts of shootings. You know, uh, even just the, uh, the, the, the hospital shooting that occurred after Valde is, is a perfectly good example of that. They actually went in immediately and confronted right. the shooter and the shooting was over within 30 seconds of them arriving. Right. Um, and that's that's a fairly common story. These sorts of stories are less common, but but they're so tragic and horrible. And there's such a lack of consequence for the people who made the poor decisions that, you know, it's it, it's something that we have to talk about, you know. No, absolutely. And, and it's worth noting uh, this officer that shot the armed citizen was cleared of any criminal wrongdoing by the district attorney in this case. Um, so there's no legal ramifications other than whatever the long odds are of this lawsuit. So just for yeah. the listeners awareness. Right. Yeah. And that's a good point to make, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, he did resign, I guess this officer, yeah. uh, although I guess isn't there a comment about the police department is would, would love to have him back. Yeah. Some local reporting here in Colorado uncovered a statement that said we, we would take him back if he wanted to come back. Cause I guess he, he resigned of his own volition after the investigation into his shoot. So, yeah, see, that's what I'm, that's, I think what I, what I'm talking about. Like often these police officers don't even lose their jobs when they make horrible mistakes right. um, or, or wouldn't lose their jobs or would be welcome back if they right. resigned. It's the same thing in Uvalde. All those officers are still uh, as of now, you know, in the police department, you know, they stood in the hallway for an hour while ch- kill- children were slaughtered. But uh, that's not a fireable offense, apparently. Right. <laughs> um, so it just makes people, you know, it makes you wonder what what is a fireable offense. <laughs> right. Um, you know, yeah. and you, that's the that's the hard part. Obviously, you don't want to put law enforcement in a situation where they're constantly uh, being second guessed about everything. But they, there also needs to be some sort of right. Some level of accountability here. Right? Some, that's, things are, that's some things are just obvious. To. Yeah. Yeah. Like, geez. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you so much for for writing this one up. I think it, it's one that's been floating around in, on social media. I've seen some references to it, but uh, there hasn't been a lot of reporting on it, uh, which is what, what we exist to do right at the reload is to sort of uh, surface some of these lesser known stories that are still very important and relevant. Right. Uh, and, and I think you did a good job with this one on that front. Um, but that's that's all we've got for this week. Make sure you head on over to thereload.com if you want to buy a membership uh, so you can get exclusive access to this podcast a day early or have the opportunity to come on the show. We had, uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, we have Mary Catherine Hamm, who's a Reload member on, on our episode last week. And uh, hopefully we'll have some more of those in, in the coming uh, episodes as well. But the only way you can qualify for that is if you buy a membership and that will also get you exclusive access to hundreds 
of posts, uh, analysis pieces, and exclusive stories that you cannot get literally anywhere else. Uh, so head on over to thereload.com and check out our membership options today. And also, if you've made it this far in the podcast, uh, it might uh, indicate that you like this show. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, you should uh, head over to go on to whatever app you're listening to this on and give us a rating uh, and, and a review. That really helps spread awareness of the show and all the algorithms and so forth. I have no idea how those work, but I believe <laughs> that ratings make a difference. Uh, I don't think anyone really knows how they work, but uh, outside of the companies. But hey, uh, give us give us your your feedback. We'd really appreciate to hear. But uh, that's it for this week. We will see you guys again next week.